Hi and welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our December screening of The Lighthouse, where we were treated to a conversation between director Robert Eggers and Robbie Collin. During the Q&A, Robert told us all about nailing the film's aesthetic, crafting its very particular dialogue and working with some highly trained British seagulls. Enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, everyone. Please welcome to the stage the director of The Lighthouse, Mr. Robert Eggers. Congratulations on this completely astonishing film. It's, it's actually quite hard to describe to people who haven't seen it what, what on earth it is. Um, and now you've all seen it, and, and, and that's great. So we can talk about it in, 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 in some real detail. If you do have some questions, we're going to uh, open to the floor in a second. So, so please do raise your hands, and we've got some, some mics going around. Please raise your hand if we've got a question. We have some mics uh, roving in the, in the aisles. Thanks. Um, this is quite vague, um, but I guess my biggest question would just be what drew you to this story or what made you want to make this film and what kind of carried you through that journey and... Yeah, what does it kind of mean mean for you to make this story, if that makes sense? The last part, I don't, I don't know. Aside from that, I'm very lucky that I was able to <laughs> make this film. Uh, basically, my brother had an idea to, to make a ghost story in a lighthouse. And when he said that phrase, I pictured the visual atmosphere of this film, black and white, 35 millimeter movie in a boxy aspect ratio with Guernsey jumpers and clay pipes and facial hair and whatnot. And so I wanted to then find a story that could go with that atmosphere. And uh, uh, day two, maybe, of reading about lighthouses, I came across uh, what's often referred to as the Smalls Lighthouse Tragedy uh, from Wales in 1801. Two lighthouse keepers, both named Thomas, one older, one younger. Uh, they're marooned at their lighthouse station because of a storm. The old one uh, dies, the young one goes crazy. And uh, I guess I didn't take it a whole lot further from <laughs> from there, uh, but but yeah, that was the sort of genesis of it. And you know, on day five of thinking about it, I thought, well, there needs to be a mermaid, uh, and you know, and you just kind of have these building blocks and you put it together. And then years later, um, uh, I, I did like after after the witch came out, and I was developing some other things that were a bit larger. Um, I called my brother and said, remember that idea you had that I stole? Let's uh, write it together. So that's what we did. What was we, uh, the ghost story aspect of it? I mean, clearly the, you can see the appeal of the lighthouse as a, as a setting. But what is it about ghost stories as a, a, a genre or a subgenre? What kind of do you see as being their essential effect on, a, on an audience? What was it that you wanted to, to get out of people? Well, uh, that's a complicated question. I think, like a ghost story, as in, in the vaguest, vaguest sense, in sort of a spooky tale to tell over a, a campfire. Uh, there's just sort of something primal about about that. That is um, what what I like: fairy tales, folk tales, mythology, religion, the occult. Like that is what. Uh, rings my bell, um, uh, so to speak. And, uh, you know, this isn't finally a ghost story. Uh, you could say that there are potentially some ghosts 
but you know, my, my brother is very expert about ghosts. I know a lot more about demons. Uh, and uh, I This is why it's great to write with uh, a partner, right? Because yes. you can have these different <laughs> specialisms. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, there are the mermaid and the lumberjack and whatnot, and some of Defoe's personas seem to me perhaps more demonic. Uh, and the some 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 uh, occultists when spiritualism was at its height, uh, who who were very more old school, felt that this that spiritualism was very dangerous because these um, mediums were not contacting uh, the ghosts of the dead, but they were contacting demons and elemental spirits who were disguising themselves as ghosts. So. I don't know. There you go. Fun fact for uh, your next party. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit more about, um, you mentioned you were developing a couple other things and then this came back around. Can you talk a bit more about what happened after The Witch and the choices you had and how you came back to choosing this? Um, yeah, so, you know, look, I'm... I was proud of the witch, but I didn't think it would find much of an audience. To be to be frank, um, and and it and it did. Um, and before that, um, when I like won the directing award at at Sundance, uh, like within ten minutes, my agent was calling me saying that there were people like interested in talking with me about franchise movies. So that like repulsed me, <laughs> and like and shocked me and uh, I think kept me a little bit grounded in fact because I thought what a f a, an absurd industry that like no one's seen my movie and because of this thing that they've heard of and I'm like new and whatever like they want me to it just it was so crazy um, and but but what happened was after the witches that I did have oppor opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise, and I thought, okay, like I have to, I, got, I must seize seize the day, um, and I and I developed. I was I was working on developing a couple things with with the studio um, that were my own uh, pieces. However, they like they uh, paid for me to write them, so they owned them. Um, even though they were mine, <laughs> and uh, and and even though like I had enough clout to get that and to work potentially work with things at a, a certain scale, like finally we couldn't see eye to eye and like I couldn't compromise enough, they couldn't compromise enough for us to agree that we were, were making the same movie that we both wanted to make, uh, and it was a very painful like tor torture tor torturous experience, but I learned a lot. I wouldn't. I don't regret it at all, um, but it's it's tough to be like spending years writing something, casting it, scouting locations, and have it die. But you know, I occasionally I could smell blood and smell the the writing on the wall, uh, and and so yeah. So I said, Max, like we should. Ha I need something. That's my brother. We should have something small in my back pocket. And so RT Features, who financed The Witch, and uh, NA24, who distributed it, like, sort of, we were, were kind of hoping that I would come back home to something small. And, uh, and, and, and certainly, I've learned that uh, I will choose uh, a small scale with control uh, over a large scale without control uh, every time. 
maybe not. I mean, who knows? Like, maybe I'm going to have some bills to pay, and I'm like going to be like, please, franchise movies, come back. <laughs> like, please, I need a job. But, but like right now, I'm I'm in a very lucky position where, like, people care about what I'm doing. So, like, I'm just hoping that'll last a little while. The witch seems totally uncompromising to, to to watch it, or totally uncompromised rather. But did you find yourself, given it was your first feature, did you have to? Did, did was was there something that you couldn't quite? get exactly as you wanted it on that that you felt with the lighthouse uh came came a lot more easily yeah i mean i'm quite proud of the performances in in the witch but otherwise it's quite hard for, I, I i i'm it, it's hard for me to you know yeah I, I was learning how to make a movie and so and so there were things that i couldn't do there were things that i Im imagined that i know better to not imagine because you can't do that it can't be done, you know, or, or certainly I, I don't, wouldn't know how now, uh, and and I wouldn't imagine it now, uh, and uh, and there and, and there were, like, <coughs> I, I don't like the the look of the film entirely because we we had to shoot it digitally um, for financial reasons. I think it was absolutely the right choice to like shoot the movie, uh, but I feel like it looks quite naked, like and and raw, and it's missing a bit of. Sfumato, a bit of atmosphere because because of that, but uh, but yeah, there's comprom there's compromise, and there, you know, and, and and with the lighthouse, once we got it, the budget sorted at a certain place. I was I, I was I was even more in a position even more of not having to to compromise. I mean, Mother Nature, she will, you know. She will make you compromise, because <laughs> uh, there's you know, and time, Father Time, he will make you compromise. Uh, but uh, but 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 A twenty four New Regency, RT features. Once they were on board the black and white and the stupid aspect ratio, they they were incredibly supportive. Another question. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So one back, and then we'll come to. Hello. Um, congratulations, great film. Um, I've got a question about your sound design in this film, um, which was amazing. Um, it seemed both sparse and very immersive. Um, it was seemed very, to me anyway, void of actual um, music. What was your decision and your approach to sound design uh, for this film? Um, uh, thanks. Yeah, my, I mean, I, uh, I'm sure that once I start describing it, you're, it's going to sound like, yeah, that makes sense. But, uh, <laughs> but I think um, we the there's a lot of the sound of the sea is ever present when you're in that location, and the weather is huge. When you were shooting on Cape Forshu, uh on the southern tip of Nova Scotia, on that rock you could be a meter away from someone and the wind was so loud you couldn't hear them speak. And that was very clear that we needed to have like a very big, boisterous sound design. Initially, I wanted something that was a potentially a mono mix to like work with the visual, but in fact, we needed a huge, huge uh, sound to, to, to make the story work. Um, so there, you know, I think that the, the, the two, the two tricky, the three. There's three tricky bits. One is sort of the the foghorn, and how do you 
uh, understand that Rob is going crazy from hearing that foghorn all the time while and like kind of annoying the audience, but not making the audience just want to walk out of the theater. Uh, so that was difficult, and it and and in reality, that foghorn would be so loud, even when they were in the house, that it would be unbearable, and they would be pausing their conversation for the foghorn. But we created like different kind of sound perspective, whatever. Uh, you know, the, the next thing is the storm that is half the film, and how do you keep that going so that we know that there is a storm, uh, but 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 but. But, but it can modulate and change. And so when, so, so it, you know, when, when I say these things, it can sound precious and obviously like the audience isn't thinking about it in this way, but it's like, when is it rain? When is it wind? When is it waves? How does that, the, the, how do those choices best reflect like the psychological uh, landscape of the character's minds in the scene? Whatever, you know, you, know, you have to ask yourself these silly questions to, to make these choices, but that's, uh, you know, and sometimes it's in instinctual. And then, uh, you know, and then the third bit was like, and I don't know how successful this is, but but it, but we wanted the place to sound as like crusty, dusty, rusty, musty, and broken as possible without it being like a cartoon. So you want the like that water pump to to, to signal that that's going to be the most dreadful water ever uh, without you feeling like. You, yeah, like the, just a complete cartoon sound, soundscape, uh, and I guess there was a fourth bit, <laughs> which was which which really uh, like finished the movie. It wasn't totally working until this, but the the sound design of the machinery and the and the lens uh, ro rotating became much more stylized than originally intended. And Damien Volpe, the sound designer, created a kind of heartbeat uh, that like in the machinery, which which was not. Uh, something that me and Louise Ford, the editor, were doing when we were creating our, our temp sound and and sort of solved the movie in a way um, by, by making the light even more of a character than it could have been. Can I ask about the foghorn? Was that a foghorn or was that sound specifically constructed? That was... Uh, Started with a foghorn, um, uh, like I was very lo-fi foghorn from from a, a rec recording, a very lo-fi recording of a foghorn in Wales. But we 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 sent um, a field recordist to Scotland to record a bunch of foghorns, which we sort of combined with that foghorn to create the different sound perspectives depending on where we were on in the yeah. It does, it does have the raw terror of the Scottish coastline. As somebody went to, <laughs> on holiday to Scotland, uh, the, the coast a lot as a kid. Um, another question. We're, um, th yeah, there. Hi. Um, Willem and Robert's performances were obviously amazing, but I wanted to ask you about the other great performance of the film, The Seagull, and how you elicited that, how you worked with The Seagull. Um, I was uh, very fortunate that... Um, uh, when when we were finishing uh, The Witch, we ran out of money in post, as indie films are wont to do. Uh, one of our investors pulled out, and there you go. And uh, Chris Columbus and his daughter, Eleanor, uh, saw the movie, and, and th their company, Maiden Voyage, like uh, uh, paid for the rest of it. So Chris Columbus has become like a, a mentor and friend of mine, and he, like through his Harry Potter connections, the owls of Harry Potter knew the seagulls of the lighthouse. 
Um, and uh, the only place it seems to be that there are uh, trained herring gulls is in the UK. So they are cla- they're, they're classically trained British <laughs> actors. Um, but basically, uh, there's three gulls that were like injured in nature and rehabilitated and couldn't go back t- to nature. Um, and uh, and basically, one of the things that keeps them from being suicidal is like having tasks to do. So they're actually quite uh, we're quite accommodating and incredibly intelligent. Um, and 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 I you know uh, the when you know when the gull lands on the windowsill, pecks three times and flies away. That was one fluid action. Like I, I expected we're going to have to have a landing plate, a pecking plate, a flying away plate and stitch it together digitally, but no, the, the birds could do it. So it's a very, very impressive. We should also talk about the fourth seagull, uh, the one that Robert's character beats to death, because that's, I mean, startlingly realistic. Um, but but the funny thing, it, honestly, it was like, it's literally like uh, like a joke store rubber chicken. Like with wings and feathers, but that's all it was. <laughs> Another question? Uh, yeah, let's go there, and then we'll come up there. Let me actually let me ask you about the, um, the shooting with that, this aspect ratio, right? You must to block these scenes. You must have to have Robert and Willem in, in like very close physical proximity in order to make those compositions sing in the way that they do. And it, it just strikes me that that's another element that you, you know, particularly when you're requiring such an intense physical performances from from your two players. Did that present another obstacle, or or did it just, it, in a way, was it easier because it's just it, it's stripping out any other possibilities, and you know exactly where you've got to have them in the frame to to make it work. I mean, it's both. I mean, sometimes you're like, hooray for this vertical aspect ratio that's like getting rid of the water cannon that's like just screen uh, right, you know, but other times you're like, just if we only could, you know, shoot this on a lens that would, you know, uh, but but it's but that's part of the challenge. I mean, I'd like you know, I'll just uh, one quick thing related to that and that, which is you know, yeah, like when be, to get them in frame together, when Willem Dafoe is lying on Robert Pattinson's chest and Rob's going like this, and Willem's looking at me like this guy better not puke on me. Like that's a situation where the tight aspect ratio and the tight proximity is quite tricky um but like you know the why this fussy format uh uh you know the the atmosphere of the film is is cumulative and it and it would and it's the dialect and it's the facial hair and it's the the you know the jumpers and the floorboards and the and the weather and the fog and uh and the the crusty, rusty, dusty pump, and 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 the format. You know, uh, obviously, black and white, uh, and and the boxy aspect ratio on a very surface level say old, helpful. Thank you. Um, but secondly, uh, the 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 you know shooting uh, black and white, it has a bleakness and an austerity that lends itself to the story, and I don't think that color would help us out. Uh, we additionally we shot with with black and white. Uh, 
35 millimeter film stock that hasn't changed since the 1950s. Um, and it has a, a rather primitive look that is familiar uh, to, to, to us. Uh, the, the blacks bottom out, suddenly it has a, a toothy grain and, and a micro contrast that's very aggressive and, and, and pleasing. And uh, you know, had we had whatever we wanted, we would have actually shot on orthochromatic film stock, which they don't make for motion picture anymore. But we had a, a custom filter made for us that uh, emulated that look. And, 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 and basically, if that, maybe you all know this, so apologies, but uh, in early cinema and early photography, uh, film was not sensitive to red light. So if you look at a daguerreotype and you wonder like why all these like uh, white people are so tan, it's because all of their like drunken rosy cheeks and and, and noses have uh, rendered to black uh, because of uh, it's orthochromatic film. So that for Rob and Willem makes them look more like salty semen, and we can see every pore and blood vessel and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it also <laughs> makes the skies more bleak. Um, and then the boxy aspect ratio, um, uh, you know, it's better for shooting vertical um, objects like the lighthouse tower. It's better for um, conveying the cramped interior spaces of, um, uh, you know, of the interiors and, uh, and creating a claustrophobic feeling. Also knowing that people are going to be seeing it as a box in a cinemascope screen. Um, and it's also a great aspect ratio for close-ups. Like sometimes for me, like cinemascope seems an anemic with close-ups, uh, and and if and and uh, you know and and uh, like because if you're shoot using spherical lenses, if you use a taller aspect ratio, it's actually you're using more of the negative and more of the lens, so it's actually like a a bigger close-up, uh, you know. What percentage of the, the casting came down to the faces? I mean, because they are two completely extraordinary faces, and you, you frame them and, and light them so evocatively and beautifully in this. I mean, it's it's not just the faces, but they you know, but they do have two incredible faces and four incredible cheekbones. Another question: Where was the uh, the, the other one? Was it up towards the back? Yep, back corner. Hi there. Um, I thought the film was great. Thank you. Um, could I ask about the proportion of um, shooting on, on location in Nova Scotia and whether there was any studio work elsewhere at a different time? Like, was there a split or was it all done on, on the rock? Um, I, I don't, I, I wish I could, like, uh, you know, about half of it was shot on the rock and about half of it was shot on sound stages, um, well, warehouses and like tall, dirty metal shops that we used as stages in uh, in and around Halifax, um, and uh, uh, we the, um, the 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 kitchen the galley was built uh, on uh, in the cottage practically on on the rock as a cover set, and we also had uh, the storage shed and the boathouse clearly like there. Um, but then um, everything else was on stage. Uh, you, you know, obviously we needed the lighthouse tower interior to be on stage so that we could like fit a camera in, into a space that's an eight foot diameter, very tight. Um, and uh, and then yeah, and then there was three or four days of seagulls in uh, a shed in Pinewood, and uh, and then one day of. Uh, three foot diameter and four foot diameter white pines logs in Brooklyn uh, floating towards Robert Pattinson. Uh, though that location was uh, like, like that part of the island was of course shot in Nova Scotia. 
How much time did you have to block the camera moves? Because there's some incredible camera movements in this, particularly around the, the lighthouse interior. I mean, there's, there's, there's almost a sense that the, the set's been built with these particular maneuvers in mind. Yes, yes. Um, it's as if you've interviewed me before. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. The don't, get, don't give away the magic. <laughs> Come on. Uh, yeah, no, um, for, for sure, that, that was the case. Um, I mean, like, Jaron Blaschke, the DP, and I are after a level of craft that, like, we can't have because we haven't made enough movies. So that's it's just a lot of extra prep time, but we, we like to do it, you know? And so it's very, very planned um, and, and, and beforehand. And then the actors come in for a week to learn their blocking uh, in relation to the camera placement uh, and the camera movement. Um, I'm not looking for performance during that period, just blocking and 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 pace. Um, but uh, and that's kind of that's kind of how we how we do it. And I think that there's you know you, you know on the one hand you prepare 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 so that like you can uh, you know do something different on the day. But we don't generally do that. And I think that there is like can be magic in the discipline of doing what you prepared to do. I, d like, I, d I think that spontaneity is great, and sometimes you need it. And certainly, Robert Pattinson provided a lot of that. Like, within the rules, he would try to, like, almost break the rules, but not break the rules, which was uh, fun uh, for me, you know? But, but Defoe delivered, like, what I asked, only better, you know? And, and, and those are different disciplines. But I think, you know, Kurosawa, in the later half of his career, like certainly when you're doing Ron, for, ex uh, for, uh, for example, would rehearse, 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 and then you get one take. And that's heavy, you know, and that's discipline. And that's also like delivering what you planned in a way that's not somehow bad. You know, I think when Herzog says things like, uh, like storyboards are empty and can only lead to kitsch, like, you know, that's if you're not using your fucking imagination. <laughs> Particularly if the film involves burning down castles, right? Like, around, you get to do that once. Well, that's for sure. But I think even, like, you know, uh, arguing with your son and his new wife and kicking over a candle stand is done once, too. Another question? Yep. Thanks very much. Great film. Just a um, quick question. Do you think it'd be fair to say to an extent um, that the story was lost in the film? I would say that it would be fair to say there's very little story at all. I would say that the plot is incredibly thin. I would say that uh, in cinema, like all you need is a great story and a great screenplay and serviceable performances to make a powerful, entertaining film. The film that, like, the movie does, like, the performance don't even need to be good. They just need to be serviceable. You don't need good sets. You don't need good lighting. You don't need good cinematography. You don't need good sound design. Uh, you you need professional sound, and you need serviceable performance. Great story. That's not this movie. You know, this movie is a, a a thin plot that's the same scene over and over and over and over again, slightly different. Um, with a w w that's about like diff like a shifting power dynamics and atmosphere. So like you know that's my intention. If you want like. Uh, you know, uh, conventional Western Hollywood dramaturgy. This is not a film for you. Sorry. Um, Respectfully. <laughs> I just wanted to ask about the dialogue because it's so, it, it, it felt very, very compelling and it had an identity of its own. And so I wanted to 
ask you about the language and how you developed that. I could see in the credits that it, where your references were, but uh, it, it, it's, it's immersive in itself. There are a couple of um, speeches in there that just fe that felt so compelling. And I was really intrigued about how you make that work because it's so difficult to write and to deliver it as well. So it'd be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about that. Thanks. Thanks. Well, the delivery is, you know, thanks, goodness, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe wanted to work with me. Um, and, and we also ha spent a long time with a dialect coach, like really ironing things out. And, and in fact, a kind, it's a kind of discipline in, dial in, in, in a accent, for, like work for Willem that he hasn't really done before. Um, uh, um, so... Uh, Basically, my brother and I we're, are trying. We're trying our best to kind of do our own, our best interpretation slash recreation of two lost uh, New England dialects. And uh, we start writing in dialect, even though before we've understood how to speak it. But but by trying to think in the dialect, it, it changes your mode of thought because you use words differently and so on and so forth. Uh, so of course, like the first place we're going to turn to for a New England maritime tale is Melville. Uh, but there is many thesauruses and lexicons and slang dictionaries and all kinds of stuff uh, that we and, and lighthouse keepers journals and interviews with lumberjacks and blah 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 blah. Uh, but but sort of the what what became the most helpful, who's credited in, in the film, is an author named Sarah Orne Jewett, who lived in in Maine and wrote in our period, and she would uh, was very interested in dialect and would interview. Um, sailors, sea captains, farmers, and such, and then write her stories in phonetic dialect. I don't particularly love her stories, but but I, I love her care to like capture how working people spoke. And thank goodness she did. And even uh, more helpful than than that, or as helpful, uh, was m my my wife found. Uh, a dissertation by a woman named Evelyn Starr Cutler, and which was about dialect in Jewett. And, and uh, Ms. Cutler provided rules. Uh, when are there such words omitted? When is there rhotic displacements? And, and that was fantastic. Because when I was writing The Witch, uh, in early modern English, it's the, you know, it, it, because of Milton and Shakespeare and Spencer and so on, like there's a lot of books that provide rules, but there's no books that provide rules to the way working people spoke in wherever you know. So to have that was incredible to to create uh, a consistency. Now Rob uh, speaks in a way that there are still some old people in New England that still speak close lead to him and we found like an old fisherman who read a lot of Rob's lines for him to work on. Defoe's dialect may never have actually existed like in, in Maine but um, but I, it, it's impossible to read the maritime characters in Sarah Or Orn Jewett's work and not hear that pirate <laughs> accent. Uh, you know, it did exist in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick in, in the period. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, you know, and it takes Willem Dafoe to do like uh, a Captain Dog from Peppa Pig Bristolian accent and like make you believe it. <laughs> did you have a favorite turn of phrase that you unearthed? Because there's so many beautiful expressions in this that just, you know, they, they sort of slap you in the face when you, when, when you hear them. Was there one that you particularly relished? Probably. I don't know. I, like, I'm like thinking of like such a boring one right now. But there's been a lot of like th th this is a boring one. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But 
like Def uh, Rob says to Defoe that he's drunker than a Virginia fence. And fences in Virginia are a zigzag shape. So the idea is that you're walking like that. So that, and, and, uh, uh, and you know, uh, my DP one day w was like, what the hell is a Virginia fence? What the hell does that mean? And I explained him, I showed him a picture. And then a year later he was shooting a movie in Virginia and he like shot a picture of the Virginia fence and sent it to me and I was like, cool. All right. Another question? I think we've got time for one more. Let's go to... The yeah, this, this very forcefully thrust hand uh, in, in, in the fourth row. I just wanted to ask about uh, your use of, um, you were saying about blocking before. I noticed in the film there aren't that many close-ups of the actors um, and that you have a lot of confidence to, to like, I guess, just let them perform. What, what are your kind of thoughts on, on that? I mean, Jaron and I are, you know, clearly not interested in conventional coverage. Uh, and the only time we shoot something with co coverage, if you will, is like if it's shot reverse shot. And other than that, we we like to have an an economy of of shots. It's not like the less shots, the better, or something like that. But but we we try to keep it to something uh, essential. Um, this may not be conveyed, but we certainly try to think, you know, who's, who, 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 who's, uh, whose perspective is this scene being experienced from or told from, uh, and, and that is, is our guide. So um, I think, you know, we don't show a big wide landscape unless, like, Robert Pattinson's character is, is, is experiencing, like, the bigness of nature or the distance to, to get to a, a place or something like that. And, and, you know, again, these kinds of ways to describe the process sound a little precious, but that's kind of um, the, the thinking. And also, you know, every edit needs to have a, a purpose, and there needs to be uh, a, a visual rhythm, but f from one shot to uh, another like it, and, and that's not just about editing but it's planning like what 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 is what's the next image we're going to see at the end of this shot what i mean uh, making movies i don't know but but i think but i think it is uh, you know designed rather than uh shot in a way to be put together later um with with a lot of uh freedom like i think jaron and i paint me and louise ford the editor into corners all the time um which is actually exciting you know that is unfortunately all we've got time for but robert thank you so much for thank you, thank you.